there, 360 Talk Radio for Women. We're on the boardroom, and this is another episode of The Visionary Woman, Empowering Your Success Through EOS. So we're sharing um, insights, tools, disciplines, some pitfalls, some successes of the EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. And so in my previous episode, we discussed the model and EOS on the whole, on a whole, uh, from a high level as what EOS simply is, is a way and a process and a system to strengthen all six key components of your entrepreneurial organization. And it's when we strengthen all six of these areas, vision, people, data, issues, process, traction when those are the six key components and we we strengthen all of those we see a lot of symptoms issues that are in our business and the headaches and hassles start to fall away and we see a business that's running more efficiently and effectively and giving you the lifestyle that you want so we're going to dive into each of those key components for the rest of the episodes so we're starting at the top of that model with a vision and vision, it's not an accident that vision is on the top because vision is so key. It's so important to the success of your business and the success of your future. And I would hear most people say, well, duh, right? Knowing who you are and where you're going and how you're going to get there is important. But I can tell you from experience in my own business, I never really had a good handle on my vision. Now, there were times where there was probably visions there, right, in my head, in my husband and business partner's head, in, in some of our leadership team, or, you know, so, so there's probably vision swirling around, but did we ever sit down together and decide and, and make that clear? No. And then... There was a good chunk of time at the beginning where I don't think there was vision or let's say the vision was so small because it was scary to cast a big vision, right? When you're just starting out, when I just started out and it was because I didn't want to go back to work after having a baby. And so the vision at that point was make sure I can provide, you know, income to the family, right, when my husband was working full-time. And then sort of as I started to do that, it became, wow, maybe um, we could actually replace our income. Um, and my husband wouldn't have to work in his full-time job so hard and work an extra job of, of helping run this business. And so you know, that was the next vision, right? And then it became, huh, maybe we could move into a nicer house or, you know, those kinds of things. And once the revenue became sustainable and repeatable, and we knew that, that this, this was, you know, going to work, so to speak, then the vision started becoming ideas and opportunities, but we would never really like put a stake in the ground and say, okay, this is where we're going. We would say things like, huh, maybe we could franchise this, or maybe we should open an office in another location, or 
Maybe we'll just grow and buy a warehouse. Maybe we'll get an event venue where all of these ideas, right? But never like sit down, spend some intentional time crystallizing where you're going and why. Why is that where you're going versus all those other possibilities, right? Because all those ideas are swirling around in your head as a visionary. So let's dive into the Vision Traction Organizer. This is a primary EOS tool, and it consists of two parts. Vision is the first page, and that consists of the first five questions, core values, core focus, 10-year target, marketing strategy, and three-year picture. And the second part of the Vision Traction Organizer is the traction part. That is where vision becomes reality because it's in the now. It's what are you doing now and in the very near future to help realize that farther cast vision. And that includes the final three questions, which are one-year plan, 90-day rocks, and your issues list. So we just keep getting more granular as we walk through Vision Traction Organizer. So let's dig in to the first part, the vision page. And I'm going to help you with some ideas on how to answer each of these questions. So core values are those things in which you're going to start filtering your decisions, your decisions for hiring, rewarding, recognizing, even firing. Because if people are not aligned with the things that you've decided are key and critical to belonging here, then it's not going to work for them and it's not going to work for you, right? This also goes into your clients. If your clients aren't allowing you to live out your core values, who you are as an organization, then they're not the right clients. And here's a, a clue. You don't need all the clients and you don't want all the clients to get to where you're going. And so that's a key way to start deciding who's a right fit in all areas of the business. And so there's a couple of traps. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, who is an amazing business fable book writing author and the CEO of The Table Group. If you haven't heard of him, I would definitely suggest going out and getting any of his books and any of his materials. Um, brilliant, uh, a brilliant man uh, and has a lot to add to your, your business. So anyway, he writes about three core values traps. And the first is aspirational values, right? So those ideas of the values in which you wish you were, right? Or you want so badly to be. And so it could be something as simple as you are innovative. That was one for us. We wanted to be innovative, but at the end of the day, what we do is rent equipment over and over, and that's how we make money. And if we want to innovate, and create new stuff all the time. We have to have a different niche and a different market. And so that was a big deciding factor of that's really, maybe we can innovate in other ways, but that can't be a core value here, right? Um, and so then the second trap 
is permission to play values. And those are those things that are so dull, so to speak, right? They're so, of course, that's a value that you don't need to state it, right? It's like honesty. Well, of course, no, we're going to hire a bunch of people who are dishonest. Like, of course, just coming in here and applying for the job and, you know, handing in your resume requires you to be honest or don't even show up, right? That's just an obvious. And I would say that sometimes they can be permission to play, but sometimes they are so deeply ingrained that it's it's actually a core value. So you have to decide that for yourself. So I would say, let's stick with honesty, right? Um, I'm going to be authentic here and say that, of course, I wanted honest people. I don't want dishonesty. I trust is extremely important to me. And I will say that we couldn't put that stake in the ground because there were times when we had to maybe say to a client that we're booked that day. When and could we take one other thing? We could have, but we wouldn't have done our best and we didn't want to get talked into it. And so we just sort of said, I'm sorry, we can't do your event. We're booked that day. Or, and that wasn't necessarily honest, right? That was a little white lie or, you know, something as simple as the way we need to set up an item to be completely safe requires us to sort of finagle or manipulate the situation a little bit because the client wants it here and it's not going to be safe there. And so we have to describe some things that maybe are, are, are exaggerations of what could happen just to make sure that things are safe. And so we decided as a team that, well, yes, honesty is important. It, it is a permission to play value. And then the last is accidental values. And this sort of is just because maybe the person doing all of the hiring has some specific values or some sp specific things that they really love in people. And when they see that, they think this is a great hire. And so all of a sudden you have this whole team of people that are very like edgy and wear black and are in their 20s. And you go, wait a minute, <laughs> how did this happen? <laughs> how is, is that sort of become the culture when that's not really us? And so you have to watch falling into those accidental traps that all of a sudden, because of the group that you have, or because of not defining it or not keeping an eye on the ball of your values, you sort of slip into something that, that wasn't intentional. So one of the best ways to look at coming up with your core values is to look at the rock stars in your organization. Think of all of the people that have ever worked for you that have just been amazing. If you could clone them, you could go to the moon, right? That you could take over your market um, if you just had an entire team of these people. And then sort of list out all of the things that make them that rock star. And that's a good way to start, you know, fleshing out what it is. Um, there's lots of other ways. Google online. If you're if you're alone, you know, if you're if you're a one man team right now and you can't really look at your team, then I would get sit real um, still with yourself and ask your subconscious, which is the smartest person in the room, about who you are. Um, 
And, you know, there's, like I said, there's lots of, of activities, exercises you can use, look at, you know, thousands of core value words and sort of circle those that you love the most that really resonate and get down to where you're looking at three to five at the most, you know, less is better. Um, and those are your set of rules. This is the rules that you live by. And secondly, once you have those, those rules, those three to five core values, now you need to define them because words mean different things to different people. So define what the value is and define it in the way that it can be behavioral. This is how you act in order to be aligned with this core value. Here's an example of what it looks like, or here's some history around that. So when you give some definition to it, then people can go, oh, okay, maybe that's not intrinsically my core value, but I can absolutely act that way. I can completely behave that way and be aligned, and it's not out of alignment with who I am, you know, that kind of thing. So they can understand if I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. Okay, so that's the big one. Core focus is the first part is your purpose, cause, and passion. Just answer that question. What is your purpose on this planet as an organization? What is your cause? What are you fighting for? What are you passionate about? What are you passionate about solving or changing? And also sort of take a look at the opposite, right? What makes you really angry? What fires you up? when you see in the world that you would want to change, that can be another way to come up with that purpose, cause, and passion. And this is deep soul work. This is getting down and really understanding your mission, what you're here to accomplish. Um, and then it also intersects with your niche. So your niche is just that, um, what you can do better than anyone else on the planet. That you and your team, with your resources, you just kill it in this area. And when you put those two together, that's where you'll really get that core focus. And it's been a, called a lot of things, a, a hedgehog, a niche, um, but we we like to call it core focus because it comes from your core, it comes from your soul, and it's what you must remain laser focused on. It becomes the filter, again, for all of those decisions. Let's dig into kind of that purpose, cause, and passion piece. Um, one of the ways that can help is there's usually, it falls into four kinds, so you can sort of see where you're at once you start playing with it, I would invite you to first sit down and start thinking about what is your purpose, cause and passion, because there's probably a lot already there. And then if you need to stir the pot and sort of, you know, get more clarity on that, there's four types. There's the solving, which are those companies whose passion it is to solve a problem. And then there's the helping. So those companies who are really out there um, trying to make a difference in the world and um, and trying to help a, a purpose, right? Um, and then there's those companies that are great companies. 
The reason for their existence is to create a great place for people to work and to create opportunity for a type of people or um, a community. Um, and then the last kind is the winning, is that that company that's purpose is to crush it, right? Like Nike, right? Is <laughs> to just beat Adidas um, was one of their focuses in, early on. And um, so it's the why. Your purpose causes the pa um, passion is your why. It's the why you exist, why you get up in the morning, even if you're not making money. Um, and I'll share a couple of examples with you. So Disney, to make people happy. Um, EOS Worldwide is helping people get what they want from their businesses. Um, Mary Kay, give unlimited opportunity to women. Um, let's see, Spotify, unlock the potential of human creativity. Uh, what's another one? Nike, to experience the emotion of competition, winning, and crushing competitors. So you see where that sort of, you can see those different types and sort of what their, what their reason for existence is in just a few words. And that's what you really want to accomplish is getting this down to as few words as possible so it can give to your team sort of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm on this journey, too. That's one of my purposes. I'm all in. I want us to succeed. Um, so you want to make sure that it can be stated in three to seven words. It's simple language, big and bold. And it has like an aha, right? And it comes from the heart. You want to make sure it involves everyone. It's not just about money. And it's got to be bigger than a goal. And if you just do make it about money, it's not going to be motivational for those who are making potentially minimum wage frontline employees or something like that, right? It's not going to be motivational to people who exist to also create and cause this purpose to come true, right? And, and everyone's important in that mission. And so they've got to be motivated by it. So it, so it is sort of a, a, a banner call, um, a banner cry to, to, do you want to be on this journey with us? Right. And then the niche is just that superior skill. It's do the one thing that you can do better than anyone else. Um, so some examples, Orville Redenbacher, popcorn. That simple. Just do one thing, popcorn. And it kept that company, right, focused on, yeah, sure, we could do chips and dips and, and charcuterie boards. But what we decided is we do popcorn. So we're all things popcorn. And that kept them focused. And, and this is a little crude, but one of the things said is choose a niche and get bloody rich. Because if you do keep on that focus, you prevent yourself from seeing shiny things and going in all those directions. Some, some more examples. TED, short, powerful TED Talks. Starbucks, premier purveyor of the finest coffee in the world. Um, EOS Worldwide, helping entrepreneurial leadership teams gain, gain traction. Kimberly Clark, um, when they sold the mills, and if you don't know that story, um, I would suggest checking that out, the, the Kimberly Clark selling the mills. Um, they are paper-based consumer products. So there's some ideas, and when you put those two together, it becomes this um, pretty powerful statement of 
who you are, why you exist, and you know your and what you do, right? So, so your core values are who you are. Your your purpose, cause of passion is why you exist, and your niche is what you do. Um, so EOS worldwide, if you put those together to create their complete core focus, it's helping people get what they want from their businesses by helping entrepreneurial leadership teams gain traction, right? Um, so there's that. So then let's move on to question number three. Question number three is your 10-year target. And this is literally from Jim Collins. Uh, good to great, your BHAG, your big, big, hairy, audacious goal. It's four to, or excuse me, 50 to 30 years out, depending on where you're at in your business. 10 just happens to be kind of an average. Um, it must be a smart goal. So it must be specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and timely, right? So you have, you do set a date on it. You make sure that it is realistic because you don't want it to be so far-fetched that is demotivational, like we'll never get there. Um, and so you want it to be relevant to who you are and why you exist. You want it to be attainable. You want it to be able to measure it, that you can say in 10 years, we did it. Um, and so it can be quantitative or qualitative. So there can be some numbers involved. And again, just like the core focus, if it's all about the numbers, like what revenue you're going to hit and what your big measurable is, like you're going to have X number of clients or you're going to sell X number of widgets, that's fine. But make sure that it also uh, ignites and motivates all your entire team from from the top all the way to the bottom, right? And so um, one of the things I also encourage people to do is think about what you want for your team and what you want this company to look like in 10 years and sort of kind of try to make that part of your 10-year target. So some examples, Coca-Cola put a Coke within the reach of every human being on the planet. They probably did that, right? <laughs> I've been to, you know, Far reaches is South Africa, and I could get a Coke. Um, EOS Worldwide um, is it recently been changed because we hit our 10-year target of 10 uh, 100,000 companies running on EOS. We're, we've um, exceeded that. Um, Nike's Crush Adidas. Um, Atlas Oil, 5 billion gallons. Um, so you see there's some quantitative and qualitative. So you just want to reach out and say, okay, ultimately, what do I want? five locations globally, or, you know, I want to make sure that every person that comes to work here loves what they're doing and is compensated appropriately and has time for other passions, that I want everyone here to live the EOS life. Um, so there's some ideas for you, and that can sort of get that, that you know, those wheels turning. Um, the marketing strategy is four things. First of all, your target market. So you're just going to get clarity on who you serve, your demographic, psychographic, and geographic target. So get real clear who the avatar is. Who are you selling to? Who is ideal? How do they think? What do they need? Where do they live? How old are they? 
What do they do for a living? All of those key metrics of, of your avatar. And then that is who you speak to, right? The next is your three uniques. And that is just looking at what are the three things that you do that no one else can replicate. And so maybe other companies can do one or two, but no one can do all three of these things. And when your target market hears that you do all three of these things, the buying decision becomes very easy because the people that want all three things will instantly be attracted to you. Um, versus, you know, well, this company does this and this, but I really love that they also do this, this last thing, right? It's just a, it's just a psychological part of the buying process is when your target market hears how, who you are and how you're unique and what you do that no one else can do, um, the buying decision becomes very easy and they know that the, the choice is you. The next two pieces are sort of optional. It's um, the um, purpose, uh, excuse me, the pledge, promise, or guarantee. Do you want to make a guarantee to take the ambiguity out of buying? So if you say, I have a guarantee that you will have a rental car while your body damage and your car is being fixed in our shop, people go, oh, okay, well, then it's not so hard to give you my car, right? I know that they're covering my rental car. Or if your promise is that you won't wait longer than 20 minutes, guaranteed. So it's that, and 50% of companies have them, 50% don't. You can say it's a guarantee, and that sort of associates like, uh, something that they're either going to get their money back or that you're guaranteeing if they work with you that they're going to get that. We can water it down a little bit and call it a pledge or a promise. Like we promise to do X, Y, Z. Um, and so that is um, your pledge, promise, guarantee. And like I said, 50% of companies have them, 50% don't. The last question of your marketing strategy is your um, proven process. And so this is just a graphic image of all of the steps in the life cycle of doing business with you. So start step one is the discovery call. This includes getting to know your vision and understanding what you want from this job and and then the next is the proposal process. And so if you just walk through all of the steps that a client takes from beginning to end of any um, interaction with you or any, you know, financial transaction with you, and you spell those out and define them a little bit and create a cool one-page graphic that you can put on your website and you can put in your sales presentation, it's, again, about taking the unsureness, the uncertainty out of signing the contract, right? Like clearly this isn't their first rodeo. They have a proven process. Again, that's what you call it. 
ours, the fun production proven process, right? And so when a client can see, oh, they have a way that they do things to be successful, as well as I can see where I'm at. So I don't worry. And I, I feel confident going through this because I can see what step we're in. It takes away that, that uncertainty. And so they're more willing to sign and buy. Okay. And lastly for today is the final question of the vision page. And that is the three-year picture. And so first we decide, you know, December 31st, 2026, right? That's three years from now. Um, and you are going to come up with what your revenue will be then. What's your annual revenue? And what's your profit? And what is your key measurable? Measurable being something that decides or, or defines the size and scope of the organization. So I've talked about this before. Number of clients, how many widgets you produce, how many events you do per year. So anyone on your team can say, oh, we do 600 events out on average a year now, and we're going to do 1,200 at that point. I see how much we're going to grow, right? It becomes, you know, so this is what it's going to look like. And then you get really clear. You close your eyes, and you just imagine everything about what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, who you're serving, what are you doing, what your role is, what other people are doing, and what their roles are, and you really just define about 15 or so um, key kind of objectives or, or vision thoughts about what it looks like so that everyone can read that and go, oh, I get it. I can see it. I can believe it. I can feel it happening. And some of them can be about your product. Some of them can be about internally and your team and benefits you may offer or things you may be doing differently so that it's it's just really kind of this all-inclusive, here's everything about what the company's going to look like in three years so everybody can get a taste and sort of dream it and want it. So that concludes the first five questions. And this second episode of The Visionary Woman, thank you for joining me. Next week, we'll be diving into the traction page, um, and we'll get sort of deep into um, some of the tools that you use in answering those three questions. And I'm looking forward to you listening again, and please reach out, dawn at abbottcoach.com, A-B-B-O-T-T-coach.com, or www.abbottcoach.com if I can help you with anything at all. I'm happy to send these tools in digital format. Best to you. Thanks for listening.